You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today on the show, I'm going to be playing an interview discussion I did with Daniel Geffrick. Uh, about dispensational premillennialism, its development, some of the main claims. Uh, we had a really awesome discussion. Now, Daniel was on my show a few episodes ago representing the dispensational premillennial side of the eschatology debate uh, with Chris Date, who represented the amillennial side. That was a really fun conversation, and Daniel is such a gracious man and a wonderfully smart and articulate teacher. I wanted to have him back on the show to really explore the claims of dispensationalism and um, answer my questions and pushback because, frankly, I'm not a dispensationalist. I used to be. Um, Have I completely misunderstood it? And that's what I wanted to find out. I think we had a really enlightening conversation and uh, you're going to hear me provide pushback and arguments. Uh, I don't do that a lot on this show. I try to give people their platform to talk, but I I needed to have these questions answered. Now, just so you understand, I am arguing from a covenant theology perspective. Uh, Now, there's different camps within covenant theology. There's Pado-Baptist covenant theology. There's the Reformed Baptists and the 1689 Federalists. Uh, There's even a camp called New Covenant Theology, which is, you know, pretty different, but Overall, what what we all agree on in the covenant camp is that the church is in the new covenant. The new covenant was made with the church, and in some sense, Israel and the church are symmetrical, the same thing. Uh, Some people like to draw a little sharper distinction, uh, but I'm I'm comfortable saying that Israel and the church are are functionally one unit now. That, That is where I'm at. So I am arguing from a basic understanding that the church is in the new covenant. Uh, Christ is our mediator. He's our high priest. And that's what we really talk about, Daniel and I, is the church and the new covenant, because Daniel makes a very sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And you're going to hear um, probably a view you aren't really familiar with, and that's really what I'm pushing back against the most. So I just wanted you to understand that I'm arguing from a basic covenant theology understanding. Uh, I don't want to get into all the weeds of paedo-baptism and 1689 federalism because all of the covenant guys will at least agree that the new covenant is the basis of salvation. If you're not in covenant with God in some way, you're not saved. And that new covenant was made with Israel and the church and Most covenant guys are going to say that Israel and the church are the one new man, and you can just call it all Israel. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, That just wanted you to understand that. But anyway, Daniel provides some good answers, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, today on Depends on How You Look at It, I'm honored to have Daniel Geffrick back on the show, and I've been given permission to call him Daniel Literal Geffrick. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, there because you go, literal is, my middle name. <laughs> he is going to be very adamant about the literal grammatical hermeneutic in the passages of the Bible we're going to be looking at. So I'm really honored to have him back on the show. We've, we've talked privately quite a bit, and I, I think I'm starting to get my head around what, what he's really saying. Uh, and what I used to believe, and maybe some things I didn't quite understand as well. 
but Daniel, thanks for coming back on the show. I, I'd really like you to introduce yourself again and remind my listeners about you and your ministry and your family. How's Daniel today? Well, thanks, Isaiah. I really appreciate uh, really appreciate the invitation. Glad to be here. And like you said, you know, just good chatting with you, you know, off air as much as it is on on the recording here. We've been talking uh, football. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you know, among other things, right? So um, I, uh, I've, uh, I've had the, uh, the privilege to be a teaching pastor for almost 20 years now, and uh, I get to teach for a couple of different schools, Bible and theology and the languages, and uh, my personal ministry is called Theology is for Everyone, uh, theologyisforeveryone.com, if anyone is interested. Just, I, I really believe that theology, biblical, sound, healthy doctrine is not just for academics, not just for pastors, you know, scholars. It really is for everyone. Every, uh, to quote Charles Ryrie, everyone is a theologian, so we should be the best theologians we can be. And so that's Amen. why I do what I do, and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and do it some more. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Charles Ryrie, we actually are going to get we're going to talk about him quite a bit today, and you can't see it, listeners, but I am in in my hands is my Ryrie Study Bible, which is a Bible I have read for many years now, and uh, I used to really be a subscriber of the the actual theological framework of dispensationalism, which is what's taught in these study notes. But I want to ask Daniel about you know the basics of dispensationalism, and then we're going to get into some of the deep dive of of what 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 the real difference is when it comes to dispensationalism or covenant theology or things of that sort. So, Daniel, what is the main claim of dispensationalism? Well, what Charles Ryrie did when he wrote his book, Dispensationalism Today, back in the uh, 70s, I believe, and then it was updated, and now it's just called dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. he, he said that there were basically three, let's say, three legs to the dispensational stool. Um, and these three things he calls, using the Latin phrase, the sine qua non, the without which not. If these three, all three of them don't exist, you don't have dispensationalism. Okay. And so the, the three are, uh, number one, the glory of God is central to everything. Everything is about the glory of God. That is his ultimate purpose. Um, in Isaiah 48, he says, I will not share my glory with anyone they will profane my name. I don't want to do that. I work for my own glory. Mm -hmm. And then 1 Corinthians 10 31, of course, he expects us to do the same, whether you eat or drink, or, you know, even if I missed anything, whatever you do, <laughs> do all to the glory of God. So that's number one. The, the, the overarching theme, the overarching purpose of everything is not salvation. That's a sub theme that glorifies God. It, it's not, um, uh, even the kingdom that, that is to come, whether we see that as a literal or a spiritual or whatever, that fulfills the purpose of glorifying God. So number one is the glory of God. Number two, and this is where we'll spend probably more of our time, is a complete distinction between Israel and the church. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'll just keep going there. Number three is um, a consistent hermeneutic a consistent method of interpreting the Bible in every passage, whether it's prophecy, whether it's history, whether it's poetry, uh, no matter what the genre is, no matter when it was written, who it was written to, consistently every time we approach the passage from a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation, which we talked about uh, the last time I was on your show, yeah. 
And what basically what we believe is that when you do that consistently in every passage, every verse, every context, you naturally come to these other two conclusions. God's glory is central to everything, and there's a complete distinction between Israel and the church. Okay, yeah. So, uh, listeners, last time Daniel was on the show, which is just a few episodes ago, we had a debate discussion uh, with Chris Date on amillennialism and premillennialism, and really the the main focus was does is there chronology for a thousand year reign? And and we really spent most of the time on hermeneutics, and they went back and forth on that for a long time. And it was it was a really good discussion. I'm really proud of the episode. Um, so I, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I wanted to give Daniel a um, a, a platform here because I've had Chris on the show. I've had other amillennialists on the show to really talk about what we're saying. But I wanted I wanted I want the premillennial side to be represented uh, as well. And by premillennial, I also mean the dispensational premillennial side because you can also be premillennial and not quite hold dispensationalism. So today we are discussing dispensationalism and its development. So. I guess my first question, it really, it's going to be about Israel, because I mean, that's what this comes down to. Uh, you, you talk about a, a complete distinction between Israel and the church. Um, so I've got a few quotes I want to read, but my first question is, what is the church's involvement in the new covenant? Because depending on what dispensationalist you read or talk to, you will get different answers, and I, I'm curious on maybe what the classical position is and what your position is, and frankly, what do you think the most biblical position is? And uh, before you answer that, let me just show you what I mean. This is from Charles Ryrie's study Bible. This is his note on Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant. Uh, this is the, the big new covenant passage. So here's Charles Ryrie. I quote, this is the principal Old Testament passage on the new covenant. Uh, it will be made in the future with the whole nation of Israel. It will be unlike the Mosaic Covenant in that it will be unconditional. Its provisions will include a change of heart, fellowship with God, knowledge of the Lord, and forgiveness of sins. All of this will be fulfilled for Israel when the Lord returns. So if I'm not mistaken, it, it feels like Charles Ryrie says here, this is a future thing, and the New Covenant really isn't here yet in any way. Now, if you read John MacArthur, who's also a dispensationalist, but I would argue that he's not as dispensational as Charles Ryrie, uh, his note on the exact same passage says that in contrast to the Mosaic Covenant under which Israel failed, God promised a new covenant with a spiritual divine dynamic by which those who know him would participate in the blessings of salvation. The fulfillment was to, indi was to individuals, yet also to Israel as a nation in the framework of a reestablishment in their land. Uh, in that time, after the ultimate difficulty, in principle, this covenant is also announced by Jesus Christ in Luke 22, and it begins to be exercised with spiritual aspects realized for Jewish and Gentile believers in the church era. It has already begun to take an effect with a remnant chosen by grace, according to Romans 11, and it will also be realized by the people of Israel in the last days, including the regathering to their ancient land. The streams, uh, the streams of the Abraham, Davidic, and New Covenants will find their confluence in the millennial kingdom ruled over by the Messiah. End quote. So MacArthur is – he's saying it's a future thing, but he's very careful to honestly agree with my side of, the, of things and say the New Covenant is here 
in a very real way, and he believes it's uh, a part of the church is a part of that new covenant. So, uh, Daniel, what's what's the church's involvement in the new covenant according to how you understand these these frameworks? Sure. Well, we have to understand that, like any other system, you know, dispensationalism is a system of theology. You know, we say that it's the natural conclusion, natural result of a literal grammatical historical uh, hermeneutic, but it's still is developed as people understand and study and and write and research and argue and and debate. And just like every other system is. And so this question of the new covenant has been developed over time. Um, Everybody agrees there's going to be a new covenant. That's not even a question. It says there, you know, (laughs) it says there's going to be a new covenant. The question is, who's it with? And everybody agrees that it's with Israel now, because uh, as as a dispensationalist, I see a distinction between Israel and the church. I have to be careful with uh, where does that new covenant fall, which is why we have some of these different opinions. Um, some years ago, one option was, well, we know that Jeremiah 31 says that the covenant will be made, the new covenant will be made with the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah after God plants them back in their land. Okay, but like MacArthur was saying, you know, there seem to be at least some spiritual blessings. Mm-hmm. So some people concluded that there are two new covenants, like two distinct new covenants, one for Israel and one for the church. Well, that doesn't really have a strong biblical basis no, <laughs> or I, any I, biblical basis. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be graceful to some yeah, of that. No, that's, <laughs> I don't think that works. No, that's fine. You know, it was a dispensationalist. They were dispensationalists who came up with that because they were trying to be true to the distinction between Israel and the church. Mm-hmm. Well, later on, people like Ryrie and, and uh, Paul Benware and others said, no, 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 you can't do that. Come on, guys, let's be honest. It has to be with Israel. So they asked the same question you did, how, how is the church connected? And they concluded, well, it must be that we receive some of the spiritual blessings today, but the fullness of the covenant, the, all of the physical blessings are for Israel. All of the spiritual blessings are for, are for Israel, but we get to participate in some of them. Uh, one okay. of Benware's um, illustrations that he uses for this is the concept of a of a house mortgage it's the uh, let's say there's a family my my wife and i have four children they're they're mostly grown and gone now but so growing up we have children in the house um we have a house mortgage a home mortgage um the children are not party to the contract between the bank and my wife and me right my wife and i are on the contract but my children get to participate in having a roof over their heads and having heat in their bedrooms and stuff. And so they say in the same way, God made the covenant with Israel. It's like the mortgage, but the church comes along and we just sort of get to live in it and participate in some of the blessings, even though we're not party to the covenant. That's how I was taught. Um, It seems to make sense. Um, The problem is coming up with, again, a strong scriptural basis for that. Uh, basically, the, the the strongest argument is, well, we have blessings that are similar to new covenant blessings. Therefore, we must, they must be the same blessings. Uh, that, that's really sort of, you know, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it's a new covenant blessing. Therefore, we must be participants in the new covenant. Right. Well, 
were there no forgiveness of sins before the new covenant was announced? Did Abraham not have his sins forgiven? Did Adam and Eve, did uh, Abel, did da you know, David under the old covenant not have their sins forgiven? Of course they did. Does that make them new covenant participants? So I've, I, I've got I would say yes, but go on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that's where we break off. Right. So, so then um, uh, there's a third option, and this is the option that I take, and that is the church has no relation to the new covenant at all. Um, we don't find new covenant language throughout the New Testament heavily uh, at all. There's, there's a couple of places that it shows up um, sort of in passing. It's not ever a main topic. It's not ever a main concept throughout the New Testament um, outside of the Gospels and the book of Hebrews. And, mm -hmm. and we can talk about that if you want. Um, and so we look at Jeremiah and we look at Hebrews chapter 8 where Jeremiah 31 is quoted in its entirety. Right. And the longest quote, by the way, from the Old Testament in the New Testament without modification and um, it says it's with the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah when God plants them back in their land. And I don't see that that has happened yet. In fact, the whole context of Jeremiah 31 is this future restoration of Israel, which I don't see has happened yet. And so if God says before the church even existed, I believe the church came into existence in Acts 2. So in Jeremiah 31, you know, uh, 600 years earlier, uh, so I believe the church started in Acts 2. So if 600 years earlier, the church did not even exist in Jeremiah 31, when God said, I'm going to do this for Israel and Judah, I have a harder time saying, well, the church has weas you know, weaseled its way into a covenant that was never made with the church, especially when God says it's going to be at the restoration of Israel. Okay, so... I'm I'm glad you mentioned the Gospels because I do I do have some pushback and questions on how we are, you know, if, if you're really saying the church really doesn't have a relation to the New Covenant, you know, in Luke 22, uh, we we get the Lord's Supper and He says, "This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me." Uh, and then He says, "This is a cup that is poured out for you. Is the New Covenant in My blood?" And we take communion as a church, so. Mm -hmm. In, in the way I've always learned, that's a new covenant ordinance. Do you take communion, Daniel? I'm sure you do. Yes, absolutely. So how would you how would you look at this passage and say, but this has really nothing to do with the new covenant? Yeah, because, well, I, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with the new covenant. I think that the death of Christ is, the, the blood is what signed the new covenant. It is signed into law, It mm -hmm. has, um, but it's not taken effect. We see this in, in our government all the time. Um, in, in Indiana, at least where I'm located, new laws tend to start on July 1st. Right. And so all year long, you know, the, the legislature is signing laws and the governor, uh, you know, sending bills and the governor is signing laws and, you know, that whole thing. And there's always a start date. This will take effect on July 1st. And so we, as we get close to July 1st, there's all, oh, you know, here are the laws that are going to take effect. I see what we, the, the, the meal in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the same thing. Let's not forget they're celebrating Passover. This was Jesus, a Jew, and 12 other Jews celebrating Passover, the yes. deliverance of the nation. And he links the cup, especially, 
to the coming kingdom when he says, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to drink this cup with you. In fact, I'm not going to drink again until I'm drinking with you in the kingdom. And so he's already thinking kingdom. And so when he says this is the blood of the new covenant, he's signing the covenant, but he's looking forward to the kingdom, just like a governor signs the law, but it doesn't take effect until later. And I see it the same way. So for you, there is no kingdom now whatsoever? None. Well, okay. There is an overarching God's sovereignty over all creation. He, I mean, he's definitely king of the universe, sovereign over all creation. But as far as Jesus ruling and reigning, like is promised throughout the prophets and, and everything, no, he's not ruling and reigning as king of Israel, as king of the church, as king of the world. Um, not at this point. No, that's all future. Let's see. Okay. Uh, so Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when I read that, I I have a hard time saying that there isn't some sort of kingdom here. And I want my listeners to understand me correctly. I'm not saying that there isn't more to come. I'm not of the millennial camp that just says, oh, well, he's just reigning in our hearts and that's it. I, I don't think that works very well. I believe you're getting a kingdom, okay? I, that's that's fine. I dispute that it has to be mosaic in nature and, and for, you know, Israel and things like that, but I think Jesus is coming to reign on the earth. Don't, no issue there. Uh, but I do believe it's perfectly reasonable to see an already not yet kingdom, the fact that he has risen to the right hand of the Father— we are being brought in and, and justified and sanctified, and he has made us a kingdom of priests according to Revelation 5. Now, you probably see that maybe as a future thing, but I read that as a, a now thing. So how would you read Colossians 1.13 about it seems that kingdom language is past tense? Sure. Well, uh, I think it's the parallel that really brings it out. There's There are two you want to call them kingdoms. He uses, he doesn't say, you know, the kingdom of, of darkness and kingdom of, of his son. He uses the domain of darkness or the, uh, the power, the authority of darkness mm -hmm. and the kingdom of his son. I think there's a parallelism going on here. There are two domains. Okay. You want to call them two kingdoms. You want to call them two domains. You want to call them two groups. Either way, he's not talking about um, I don't see anything in the context where he's talking about the coming kingdom, the, the kingdom that is prophesied by uh, the Old Testament prophets ruling in peace and righteousness in Jerusalem, in Israel, you know, wolf lies down with the lamb. All of the things that the prophets said the kingdom would look like here on earth, I don't see that in the context. I think what he's saying is that we have, in fact, the, the, um, the, the, the content, uh, the word here, we have passed over, we've been transferred, we've been rescued. In verse 13, we've been rescued from the power or the domain of darkness and moved into the, the domain of his son, the kingdom of his son. I'm seeing this as two domains. You've got this the, the darkness side, you've got the light side, you've got Satan's side, you've got um, uh, Jesus' side, you've got evil side, you've got good side. Uh, not so much a dualism uh, from a philosophical standpoint, but the concept, there's one or the other. You can't have both. They are mutually exclusive, and there's no straddling the fence. Okay, so, but I, I am, just so I understand you, this, this kingdom I'm referring to has nothing to do with the coming kingdom in your eyes. This is just 
generally God's sovereign goodness. I, 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 I guess I don't understand because when I see kingdom, I, I see kingdom and I think kingdom and I think Jesus is king and it's now and not yet. And he's coming back. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So that's because I, I think you're well, I think you are bringing that version of a kingdom into the word. Sure. You know, kingdom has a range of all sorts of, you know, types of meanings, types of kingdoms. You know, we're all even Satan is within God's broad universal sovereign kingdom. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, we would agree with that. But, but it's it's just as fair to say that you're bringing the assumption that Israel and the church are so distinct. This can't be what that means. Well, the reason and and yeah, you're right. That's a presupposition. I'm bringing right. that into this text. But the reason I'm bringing this into the text is because of the hundreds or thousands of descriptions that the Old Testament gives us about what that kingdom is supposed to look like. They okay. they describe the kingdom so thoroughly that to say, yep, we've already been brought into it and this is now, I'm looking around saying, this is a pretty you know, crappy kingdom. If that's, if, if, if what they're describing is, is, uh, is now then, um, you know, I've got a problem with that. Well, that's fair, but I think that's why people in my camp make the distinction between there's, there's already and not yet. It's, it's a consummation. It's, it's, it's something that's moving through time. Um, well, listeners, don't you I have to, don't, don't you, sorry, don't you have to then don't you have to admit then that you're bringing a spiritual already aspect to the kingdom that you don't find in the text? The text never no. says that the, the, the scriptures never say that there's going to be a physical kingdom and a spiritual kingdom. The prophets say there is going to be a kingdom at a certain time in a certain location, and it has both physical and spiritual as uh, characteristics to it. I, I think I think my question would be or my response, my, my response, I'm sorry would be, yes, the prophets say that, and um, they do, and it's very literal, it's very descriptive, and I'm perfectly okay with those things happening. <laughs> but is Jesus and the inspired apostles' interpretation of those things relevant? And I think the answer is yes, because we we do have passages, and I'm, and I'm not trying to shotgun you with passages, I promise, but we do have things that say, uh, like in Luke 11, when Jesus says, if, it, if the, by the finger of God I've cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If that was 2,000 years ago, I have a hard time relegating that to another time that I, I, there's something that in his ministry came about. Um, I, I don't know the exact verse, I'm, I'm blanking, but there's another thing he says where the kingdom of God is not coming in a way that can be observed, but it's in your midst. There's something spiritual here now, and I have to do something with that uh, just just in my brain, and that's why I, I do default to this already, not yet. So go mm -hmm. on and respond. Sure. Well, Jesus did come. When you read the first half of the Gospels, you know, the first half of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and maybe say the first quarter or so of John, because he spends so much time on Passion Week, Jesus is offering the kingdom. He never describes it because they already had their description from the Old Testament, from the prophets. They knew exactly what the kingdom was supposed to look and feel and, and like, and, you know, they knew Messiah was supposed to come and, and, and bring it in. And so when Jesus arrived, uh, even John the baptizer, the John the Baptist, he said, the kingdom is at hand. It, it has come near to you. Jesus said the same thing. It's at hand. It's come near to you. Basically, he says, I'm here. I'm ready. Do you want the kingdom? 
And their response was, well, we want the kingdom, but we want it our way, and our way doesn't include you. So are you are you an advocate of the postponed kingdom theory? I am. Because oh, Jesus, well, that changes because, everything. Yeah, because Jesus says that I am removing the kingdom from you, and I will give it to others. And at that time, you'll notice in his ministry, he started teaching differently in different methods, the parables. He backed off for the most part from the big mass miracles. He started working more more privately with people who were interested in him and his message. And he started preparing his uh, closest followers, the, the, the 12, for his death. All of that's was in the second part of of the gospels and the ministry he stopped offering the kingdom and so yes the kingdom is not the church it's not in the church we're not the kingdom the church will be in the kingdom in the future will be there but we are not the kingdom it's not made up of us and this all of the promises that uh, god made to national israel still have to be fulfilled. So when Jesus said the kingdom is here at hand, it's among you, he's offering it legitimately, and they said no. So, and I I really don't know a whole lot about this particular position. You're the first person I met that would ever say I'm an advocate of the postponed kingdom theory. Um, Was atonement a part of that? Was his death on the cross a part? Or do you think he would have been their king if they would have accepted it, like a Davidic king? Yeah, so this is a this is a fun question. It allows us to speculate a little bit, sure. right? You know, a hypothetical. So let's say let's say that uh, Israel said, "Yes, finally Messiah is here," and they embraced Jesus as Messiah as King. What would have happened? Here's my take on this. Obviously, this is not historical; of it's course. speculation. But you know, um, the reason that Rome that that Pilate finally executed or allowed Jesus to be executed was because the the Jewish religious leaders said he is trying to build a kingdom and if you let him do this you're no friend of Caesar's okay he would mm-hmm. never pilate would never let Jesus be executed under the Jews uh original plan he calls himself the son of god john 19 you being a man make yourself out to be god blasphemy mm-hmm. was their charge but they never would get that on through pilate so they had to do it through treason Well, if Jesus had been embraced by Israel as the Messiah, as the king, then he still would have died. He still would have been executed for treason because Rome never would let him set up his own little kingdom within the empire. To fulfill all prophecy in the Old Testament that had already been made, which does not include the church. I don't see the church anywhere in the Old Testament. But all prophecy still had to be fulfilled. So he still had to go into the grave, but he still couldn't be decayed. So he'd come back from the dead on the third day, just like he said. So the resurrection is still true. or The death is still true. The burial is still true. The resurrection is still true. Isaiah 53, we get all of that. He would have ascended, just like the prophets say. He was would ascended. He'd go to the right hand of God. We still have to go through the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30. We still have to go through Daniel's 70th week because we see that as the the first 69 weeks were culminated when Messiah was cut off. So there's his death. We still have to go through the 70th week. So Jesus ascends. Rome, in this case, because that was the world power at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, tries to destroy Israel. Satan and uh, Antichrist and all of those things still have to happen. Jesus comes back for his second coming. 
seven years later and sets up the kingdom, which would have started around AD 40. Everything in the Old Testament completely fulfilled, even if Israel would have um, accepted Jesus as their Messiah and as their king. So I... And then again, I'm not going to poke holes at the speculation because that that's not even right. But so going back to what we have now, the what how salvation history has unfolded, mm-hmm. I don't understand how the postponement kingdom theory works because you know even in Galatians three he says, "Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. It so what I'm what I'm, what I'm arguing is that the the engraftment or the the Gentile inclusion was always there. And it feels like you have to say it wasn't. It was plan B. No. Um I, I would I would disagree with that. I, I agree with you that the Gentile inclusion was always there. Okay. Even if you look even if you look through the gospels while Jesus was offering the kingdom. Who was he offering it to? Not just the Jews. There were Gentiles constantly around him. Uh, he he talked to centurions. You know, healed people from mm-hmm. all over the place. If you look at Matthew uh, Matthew chapter four, he's healing and 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 teaching tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly of people from the Decapolis, people outside of of Israel, Syria, you know, all around the area. Um, I, uh, Genesis twelve, when when God initializes this covenant with Abraham, he says that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And of course, Paul takes that in Galatians. Paul picks that up. Yeah. yeah and as, and, and my seed. side really likes that verse. <laughs> yeah. And I, I and I agree with that. All nations of the earth will be blessed through Christ, through the seed in, in Galatians 3. Mm-hmm. I have absolutely no problem with that. In fact, Luke, you pointed to Luke. Luke has more Gentile inclusion in his gospel than uh, Matthew and Mark do, really. It's always been about including the whole world, not just the Jews. The question well, is, would how they have had to Jews? proselyte? Would they have had to convert to Judaism to 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 benefit from the king? Or because the church, what we have now, and what I'm what my side sees, and, and I'm arguing for a, a basic covenant theology here, obviously, um, is that the law is not a you know we're not under the law. In, in that sense, we're not we're not to be uh, Ju- Judaizing isn't doesn't need to apply to us. Mm-hmm. It's this liberty, this freedom that we've been set free by this wonderful Savior, and it doesn't feel like that works if Jesus comes back to be this Mosaic King. Well, the, the there's a little bit of a misnomer because the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, is done with. Right? I'm, I'm, Even I'm sorry, I, I, the Davidic King. The Davidic, so even under the Davidic king, there's still got to be a, a a rule of law. There's still going to be a law in just like every other government, sure. except it'll be a perfect law. So it will not be the entire Mosaic covenant. It won't be or the Mosaic law rather. It won't be the mm-hmm. Mosaic law. Um, it will not have a complete priesthood exactly like the Levitical system did. There will be a priesthood. There will be a temple. There will be animal sacrifices. But the purpose will be similar but different. Of course, Jesus has already died, so there's still com- there is complete propitiation for sin. Um, but yeah, there's still going to be a law. 
there's still going to be fines if you break the law. You know, that type of thing. That's what the animal sacrifices. But you're you're arguing for an ancient theocratic system in what will be a post 21st century world. Well, if you understand the the tribulation or the 70th week as a time of complete destruction on the world, then it's somewhat dystopian that, uh, th- you know, there will be dis- topographical changes and, and a lot of other things that take place on this planet that will bring it back probably to an agricultural type world. And, and, and it is, it is theocratic and what God, which I'm promised, okay with, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay with the, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe that, that God's law is, is, is is the best law but like i <laughs> i'm using that word in the historical context of israel was a theocratic nation and frankly you and i don't live in that anymore well they were supposed to be they they never right. they never fully embraced the theocracy which is why they wanted a king but you see the um, distinction i'm making between then sure, and now sure the 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 thing is though that if you if you would have asked abraham when god said i'm going to make you into a great nation abraham how do you understand that he would have understood that a, a great nation requires four things. It requires a lot of people. It requires a geographical land that they can call their own. It requires some kind of government. And the only government that he was familiar with was a dynastic monarchy. Mm-hmm. And it requires a national religion. Now, most modern people will buy the first three, but they throw out the last one. Because what we understand today is, well, no, this is a pluralistic society. We don't have to have a national religion, you know, government religion. In fact, Congress shall make no religion, you know, type thing in the United States. But we are the anomaly. The United States and and what we have been able to to put forth over the, the last couple of centuries is is completely unheard of in history. Mm-hmm. You know, for four, six thousand years, most of human history has had countries or nations with national religions, gods and goddesses that they worshiped. And when one nation went to war against each against another, it wasn't just the people fighting. They really thought it was the gods fighting. And whoever won simply proved they had a stronger God. Sure. And so when Jesus is sitting as king, he is not only the Davidic king, not only the government, but he's also the theocratic king. He is God himself and all of the world will not only obey him but is supposed to worship him so you do have both there okay i do i do have a, a fun question my wife wanted me to ask you because she listened to the debate and um she was confused about the animal sacrifices and we don't have to totally jump into this we'll stay on track here but <laughs> she wants to know that <laughs> if you're right and the millennial kingdom is you know we're this law is like a, you know, there's fines and there's sacrifices. Will she have to fly to Jerusalem to pay her, her taxes and things like that? Or because there's only one temple, unless you think there's going to be little micro temples. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a fun question. And I think it's probably worth some speculation. And she's not trying to be asinine either. Like nope, she, that's, that's a real question. Yeah, that's, that's fine. It's one of those things I have, I have absolutely no problem saying the Bible just doesn't give us all the details on every issue. Okay. So um, what I do know is that if if I take uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48 literally, which mm-hmm. I do, then there will be a temple with a specific size and specific decorations and specific, you know, whatever. 
including an altar, and there will be animal sacrifices. We know that if we line it up to the mosaic sacrificial system, because that's the only one we have to compare it to, um, some things broke the law, but weren't what we would consider, you know, sin. Right. You know, they, you know uncleanness right. was not a sin. It's just a lot of the law taught taught you about how God is so transcendent above our nature and how we are not. And mm-hmm. we need to be pure in his presence. And yep. so it's it's not a sin for a woman to have her cycle. Right. Right. Exactly. But she had to offer a sacrifice mm-hmm. to to make herself acceptable again or to purify herself so that she could rejoin the covenant community. Right. Right. So I see the same thing with the animal sacrifices in the millennium. There would be people who will, uh, they're going to break the law, call it a speeding ticket, call it whatever you want. Does that mean they have to fly to to Jerusalem with their lamb or whatever? Uh, (laughs) You know, I, (laughs) you know, does it mean that, um, uh, much like in Israel, there were Levitical cities where people could go to have the Levites, you know, arbitrate the law for them. Will Will Jesus uh, have? You know, I I don't know. I don't know because That's the, the scriptures just don't say. I, and I'm okay with that. And I I totally respect an I don't know answer. I just was curious on your thoughts because you are one of the most well thought out uh, people on this subject. You've actually given me an answer worth thinking through. Because the memoriam idea just frankly is bad. You know, well, we're going to we're going to kill animals to remember what Jesus did, even though we have this thing called the New Testament or even better yet. We have Jesus in front of us to tell us about what he did. That's just silly. And frankly, if you're going to take it literally, those sacrifices have to do something. Yes. So and that's that's you know, that's fair. So. So going on talking about the new covenant and the church and stuff. I'm sorry to get off track, but it, this this is a this is a rabbit hole, and uh, frankly, a rabbit hole I love to keep digging in. I don't know why. The kingdom of God. Uh, I want to end on one thing here. So I, I mentioned before. I think why why I take my view of the already not yet and the spiritual aspects are here is because I think I have to really do something with Jesus opening the minds to understand the scriptures in Luke 24. Now, I realize it doesn't say he opened their minds to understand the kingdom is purely spiritual. I understand that. But I do feel like there was some misunderstanding about what their expectations were. And he t- he teaches them about it was taught that the Christ would suffer and rise on the third day. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You're a witness to these things. This was the plan from the beginning. And they had to understand the Old Testament taught that. And obviously they didn't understand that or he wouldn't have had to open their minds. So in my head, and of course I've been taught this by covenant theologians. This isn't an original thought, but to me, Spiritual kingdom now comes along with that as well. Okay. So I I want you to respond to that at however you will. I just I think what do you do with him opening their minds? Because it sounds like you interpret the Old Testament exactly how a traditional Jewish person would, with no exception, and it feels like Jesus had to correct that. Well, um, first of all, I appreciate you saying that because uh I, that's what I try to do. You know, it was the <laughs> the Old Testament was written okay. by traditional Jewish people to traditional Jewish people, and so that's actually a very nice compliment. Thank you. Oh, okay, that's sort of what I try to do. We call it authorial intent. What did the author intend when he wrote it to his audience? Sure. So, so here's how I would respond. I'm looking at Genesis, or Genesis, right? I'm looking at Luke 24 here, 
And he mm-hmm. says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, what did he say to them? He wasn't correcting them about the coming kingdom. He wasn't correcting them about the new covenant. He wasn't correcting them about the Davidic covenant. What did he correct their minds about specifically that Luke thought worth writing down? And of course, the Holy Spirit inspired this, this su- text. suffering on the cross. The suffering on the cross, the rising from the dead. See, all of that stuff is in the Old Testament, but they didn't quite grasp it. Um, the the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now, hold on a second. Israel was a come and see. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. That's Matthew 5. And all the nations were supposed to come to Israel to see this anomaly in the middle of the world. How could this tiny little nation be so blessed? You know, who is doing what? What kind of God do they have that that allows them to work six days, not seven? that uh, has them you know, follow these weird, what seems like arbitrary, stupid rules about what they can wear and what they can eat and not eat and all this stuff. And yet, look at the blessings that they have. We've got to find out what's going on. The Queen of Sheba is a classic illustration of, of exactly what Israel was supposed to be in this world. They were all supposed to come. Jesus said, it's... That's true. That was the case. But there's also a you got to preach forgiveness of sins to everybody in the world. Not everybody's going to come to you. And it's not all going to be about how awesome God is, but also the forgiveness aspect. That's not something you see preached in the Old Testament very often. Um, uh, beginning from Jerusalem. So we're working outward, not just expecting people to come to me and your witnesses of these things. And I'm behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, which you go back to John 14, 15 and 16 in the upper room discourse. And so he's teaching them about the Holy spirit, which they did not fully understand from the old Testament. So I see, you know, I just listed off, you know, almost, you know, a half a dozen things or whatever that they did not understand just using Jesus words here, but it wasn't the kingdom. He okay. didn't correct their understanding on the kingdom. Okay, and and that's and and I I acknowledge that I know uh, those words aren't there, but I I do feel like when I when I read passages uh, in Second Corinthians three where to this day a veil remains on the Jewish people when they read Moses, it feels like they're missing something without that Holy Spirit enlightenment. Sure. Now now you might just say well they're missing salvation, mm-hmm. but I, I think they're missing the the plan as well um and then we can just agree to disagree but that it's a hermeneutic issue right well, so well, and, well, and, how- and as as you go through the first several chapters of acts you still see when jews are preaching to jews when the apostles are preaching to jews not so much to the gentiles but especially to the jews there's still some kingdom language in there they're still learning that you know what uh, the kingdom is not here right now. You know, we want you to be in the kingdom. The kingdom is still coming, but somehow we missed it. And again, like I said earlier, there's a development of doctrine as as uh, as their doctrine developed, as they learned things, as God revealed new new information to them. They didn't have everything in the first few chapters of Acts. There's still a lot more revelation to come. And okay. so they're still preaching a kingdom because they feel they still expected a kingdom, and yet it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming. Okay, so um, my next question is is about this this new covenant thing. Uh, we you mentioned Hebrews eight and how that's uh, it quotes Jeremiah in entirety. 
So if the new covenant isn't quite, okay, you would say it's here, but it's not here, but the church isn't involved. Why in the world are they warned and talked about Jesus is the better priest of a new covenant that isn't really in effect yet? Why Hebrews seems pointless if there is no connection between the Jews being saved and that, because they're a part of the church, mm-hmm. if the new covenant isn't relevant to them in that way. Well, I, I again, I think the, the new covenant is not the main argument of the book of Hebrews. He gets to it, but he doesn't get to it until chapter 8. And then by the time he talks about it in chapter 8, which is one of the shortest chapters in the book, he moves on to other things. So the new covenant is just one of many things that Jesus does. It's true he's the mediator of a better covenant, uh, but it's not the only better thing that Jesus does. In fact, the word better is is a key word in Hebrews because it shows up so often. He's mm-hmm. a better revelation. He's a better priest. He's a better... Um, uh, hope. He offers a better hope. He's a better mediator. There's a better covenant. There's all of these things. And the new covenant is just one of those things. But don't you find it interesting? But that, pre- that the, but but the entire book of Hebrews is covenantal language. Priest has no relevance outside of the idea of a covenant. Is Jesus my high priest as, as a member of the church? Or is I mean, just how am I forgiven is my question. Well, sure. I mean, the because the the, the when you take the big picture of the high priest, the high priest is the person who stood between the sinner and God. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, Jesus is the high priest for every believer because he's the person who stood between the believer and God. He took his blood into the 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 real temple in heaven, not the shadow temple here on earth, right. but the real temple in heaven. He offered his own blood. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. I mean, it's very it's cool. crazy. It's yeah. awesome. But notice Notice that it is in a book written to Jews with this history that all of this language is used. Paul didn't use all this language when he's writing to the Gentiles. He used different language. He used different illustrations to explain the truth of Jesus and his media, you know, mediation and everything. First uh, Timothy 2, he is the mediator between God and man. Mm-hmm. But he didn't go into a whole bunch of sacrificial and Levitical language and illustrations. He just said that that's true, and he moved on. It's in a letter or a sermon or an epistle to Jewish people who were believers in Jesus as Messiah, who were tempted to turn back away from him, to hide their Christian faith for convenience, because persecution was starting to ramp up, Mm -hmm. and they thought, well, it's okay, I'll I'll just hide back in Judaism because Jews aren't being persecuted right now, Christians are. So I can hide back in Judaism, and then when everything is clear, I can come back out as a Christian. And the writer of the Hebrews says, you really think that you can hide back under the thing that sacrificed, that crucified him? That this, this, this religion, the system that you have said was not good enough You've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. You think you can go back and hide under that and be blessed by God and not suffer consequences for that? You can't do that. Because then when you come back out, it'll be like sacrificing him all over again. He is better. So either embrace him for who he is and suffer the consequences for that or deny him and suffer, suffer the consequences for that. You will suffer consequences in either case. Yeah, and I, I want to affirm that I, I do believe Hebrews is 
obviously written to Jewish people. I it'd be foolish of me to try to say, oh, this is a gen- Gentile audience. I get that, but my I, but my argument is, I'm as a Gentile member of the church. I'm still in this new covenant, and where we disagree is that you're saying I'm not, and I, I don't understand. Even if even if we're just talking to Jews here, why are they being warned not to trample the blood of a covenant that they're not a part of? Well, the Jews are a part of it because for it them, will be made, then they will it will be made with the whole house of Israel and with the whole house of Judah will, will be, be made, made. But I'm saying yeah. it's 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 present tense in this book. It's because, here. Well. It's it's because Jesus has already died for it. The blood, it's already signed. The fact that it doesn't take effect doesn't mean that it will not take effect in the future and you won't be affected by it. What he's saying is that he's already signed this. It's already, it, it, it can't be undone, right? It, Jesus has already died. It's already been signed. It can't be undone. This is your hope. This is what you're looking forward to. And you aren't just rejecting that. You're actually rejecting him which is the point of the thing. You're not just rejecting the covenant. You're not just rejecting Moses. You're not just rejecting Aaron or Melchizedek or any of the other people listed. You're actually rejecting Christ. And because there is this new covenant coming, because it's better than what our ancestors were under, and let's not forget that some of the the recipients probably were alive before Jesus died, which means they were under the old covenant. And they've been freed and released from the old covenant, but they have not started the new covenant yet. Um, and so he said, it is come. It's it's there. Don't reject Jesus because you're going to miss out on some stuff if you do. Was Jesus mediating for the believing Jew in the first century? Well, he was mediating even when he was alive for for the Jewish people. So right, yeah, after his was, death. When he ascended and and all the things had been fulfilled, was he mediating? Was he their high priest? He was their high priest, but yes. no covenant. But the covenant's not really there yet. It is not in effect. The covenant is not in I, effect yet. I don't get that. It just so it's, let me, it's too so disjointed. Let me, okay, so let me ask. Let me ask you this: What okay. covenant? Um, and I think I know where you where you'll answer, but I'll, I'll let you say it. What covenant was Abraham under? Long before even the long before even the Mosaic covenant, when Melchizedek stood between him and God for a for a moment. Well, luckily, the book of Hebrews is just wonderful about by faith. They did all these things. Um, Now, I'm I'm a little closer to what's called like the 1689 federalism or even new covenant theology. Long story short, you know, a, a Presbyterian covenant theologian might say, well, they were in this covenant of grace, which was administered through. Moses and this, that, and the other. Um, I'm not quite convinced of that, but I do believe that anyone who was ever saved was retroactively saved by the benefits of the new covenant. So I, I, I believe that God and his eternal decree and the elect, I know you're not a Calvinist and that's fine, but um, that's all. that all works together as a beautiful thing for me. Got the cross, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, what I'm in now is the same thing Abraham was saved by. He was saved by the faith of what he understood in Yahweh. Okay, and I would agree with I would agree with that part of it. I would agree, um, and, and this is one of those things dispensationalists often get charged with preaching multiple methods of salvation, multiple <laughs> ways of salvation. We've never taught that. Um, there was one in the first edition of the Schofield Bible, 
uh, the study notes, he indicated he, he phrased it in such a way that in one place that it indicated that their salvation may have been by works in the Old Testament. He never actually believed that it was it was uh, corrected in later editions of the Schofield Bible. Dispensationalism has never taught anything about salvation except by grace through faith. It's always been by grace through faith. And so I would agree with you. Abraham was saved by grace through faith retroactively, if you want to use that term. Uh, but I wouldn't say retroactively under the new covenant. I would say retroactively simply through the cross. Romans okay. 3 says, says God has overlooked those things until Christ came so that he could be both just and the justifier of everyone who believed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to bring the new covenant to that. Um, in fact, I see that Christ's death the blood of Christ um, accomplishes several things, and the new covenant is simply one of those. Not, not, not everything. Sure, but I think there is something to be said, and I'll even give a point to my Pado Baptist covenant friends because they they like this verse <laughs> in Hebrews. Um, the Lord Jesus is the great Shepherd by the blood of the eternal covenant. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to say that's the eternal covenant of grace. I don't know, could be, but it does seem like there was always something in effect that brought us to now mm-hmm. um and uh and that's why you know obviously me and you dana are, we're orthodox christians we're saying anyone has always ever been saved by faith how that all looks in eternity i don't know yep. but you definitely weren't saying sacrifices saved them never no because you you've read through the book of hebrews right um okay so i guess now if that that answers where we're at i mean i i i disagree i just the new i believe as a gentile the church is a new covenant with with Christ. The new covenant is here. It is now. Um, I, and that's why, you know, the reason this is such a debate is when you read Jeremiah 31, it says it's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And his literal hermeneutic compels him to say, well, that's their covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, my hermeneutic of, well, the church and Israel become somewhat symmetrical. I'm OK with saying I'm a part of that. Mm-hmm. I was grafted into that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just to so my listeners understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying the church replaced Israel. I'm saying I joined Israel in a sense. Mm-hmm. So um, let's see. And, and I would and I would say that there is a complete distinction, right? Yep. Yeah, and you're and there. Yeah, you're saying there's a complete distinction, which is why you're brave enough to say their new covenant really isn't. We're not really in the new covenant. We're just saved via the cross, via those benefits, right? Sure, sure. I think we're I, honestly. I think I might have said this to you off camera at one point or off off recording at one point, but um, I think we're actually in a closer relationship with God through Christ than a covenant offers. A covenant's a business transaction, honestly. Um, You know, my 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 wife and I have a marriage covenant. That marriage covenant is is essentially a business transaction as far as the state's concerned and laws are concerned. You know who gets what. Uh, you know, you know if, if somebody, you know, all of that stuff. But my marriage is not based on that covenant. I mean, it, there is a covenant, but my marriage goes far deeper than that covenant. I don't need a covenant for my marriage to to be at the place where it is, which of course, has developed. I've been married at this point for almost 25 years. You know, my marriage is in a different place than it was 25 years ago. Uh, but through Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. That's You don't find that language in the uh, under uh, for Israel in the Old Testament. Um, we are the body of Christ. You don't find that language. Um, we're, we're so much closer to God through Christ 
in a familial way than Israel really ever had in their covenantal way. So I don't have a problem saying uh, it, it sounds sort of jarring. No, we're not in covenant with God. What? What? You know, yeah, we're, we're so much closer than if we all we had was a covenant with God. So I think it's a benefit. I don't think it's a taking away of a covenant. I think it's I think it's closer. I don't think a covenant necessarily would add anything to more than to what we already have. Then what is the point of the language in Ephesians 2.11 and where he says, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, just like you say, we are we are. Once who were far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself mm-hmm. is our peace. Uh, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments ex- expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to one spirit, to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So I know that's a long-winded verse here, but my point is it, it Paul does seem to say that, yeah, you were separated from all this, but now you've been brought near. To me, there's, there's, there's symmetry here. And while I'm not saying I get to call myself a Jew or something, fine, but— I have been brought near to this this community, and the, there's one household of God, no longer two, which is what you actually argue for is two households of God. And I'm saying it's one, and that the New Testament talks until it's blue in the face to make that clear. So the, I guess the question is, what do you see this passage as saying we have come near to? We were far off from what, and we're now near what? The blessings of Israel, Israel's uh, promises, and 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 even in Galatians three, we are heirs according to promise if we're children of Abraham by faith. It's by faith Abraham promises. It's just it's it's one. Mm-hmm. That that's what I'm. That's what I see, and that's why I. That's that's the covenant theology in me. So how would you answer that if you're just saying we're just in a familial relationship? We don't need covenant, but I'm arguing that we've actually been brought near to all those things because of Christ. So I would say that the the um, the passage isn't so much about bringing us near to the covenants as it is bringing us near to God. Okay. And I think we see that in in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Israel was already near God. They had the covenants. They had the prophets. They had the promises. They had all this stuff. We, As a Gentile, if I were living back then, I didn't have any of that. I was far away from God. The only way to come to God was to go through Israel. They were God's well, royal priesthood, the nation, the chosen nation that they, they were supposed to be the priests of the entire world. I had to go to, through Israel to get to God. I was far off. I didn't have any of that. But now he came and he preached both to those who are far off, Gentiles, and to those who were near. Jews, so that he could bring us into one new distinct unit, the church. That doesn't mean that the promises that he made to Israel are going to go away. God is still a promise-keeping God. It's a character thing. Um, uh, we, we don't argue that they go away. Right. We just, right, we just I, argue they find bigger and better fulfillment in all of it. 
and it's not just about a piece of land anymore. Just right. I just wanted to make that clear. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I get that. Um, yeah. I, yeah. 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 I understand that. What I'm saying is that when God makes a promise to someone, He doesn't get to without without a character. At least in my mind, without a character issue, start adding people and say, "Oh, well, I know I promised it to you." But I'm also going to give it to this person, this person, and this nation, and this nation over here as well. I'm I'm changing. It makes me think of Darth Vader. I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. <laughs> that's and that's sort of how I see it. If God can just arbitrarily change the rules, and we could say, well, you know, they're God's rules. He can change anything he wants to. Yes, that's true until it becomes a character issue. And I see it's a character when God says this, I will do for this people at this time. I don't think we get to say, well, I think he meant at a different time for a different people. Well, that's why Galatians says to seed and not seeds. And that's that's where we make our case is that it was always the plan. And there's we're not saying God changed his mind. We're just saying there was a mystery that the Gentiles would be grafted into all this. And that was never, it's not a new thing. It was always, Paul says that the scripture foresaw that we'd be justified by faith. And the children, what, why is there, why is there such a labor on Paul's part to make a distinction between the children of faith are the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh? Because for the very reason that, that I actually espouse this because God did make promises to ethnic Israel and I'm not an ethnic Jew. Therefore I have none of those promises, but he also then preached justification through faith to everybody. I get to tap into that. I get salvation. I'm an heir of salvation, which is the point of Galatians three. Galatians three, isn't talking about inheritance of all the physical promises and the covenants. It's the heir of salvation. He doesn't exclude it. Except he just uh, he doesn't exclude it though. When the whole context is about justification through faith, justification is a declaration of righteousness. It's not a uh, there's there's no grafting that you're talking about. That's Romans eleven. Right. Uh, there's uh, none. The whole context is a in Galatians, and we have to remember what's the point of Galatians. He's trying to address a specific issue. Judaizing. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, right. The, the, the Which issue, I think goes in my favor even more. He's like, this doesn't matter anymore. You're all one. No, it's it's for salvation. It's for salvation. You say that you started with this or you, you say that it's a through the spirit, but now you're trying to do it through works. You're trying to do something that was never meant to say. It's all about salvation. It's not about national promises. Well, sure. I mean, I. I don't again, and I there's there's all millennialists out there that don't have a problem with uh, with with Israel getting the land back, and I I really am not here to argue about the land, but my point is it does I, it really comes down to this. There's something covenantal here. There's we're all in covenant together. That one new man is in covenant together with Christ, and to say that no, that covenant's just still for only Israel. Just it's so disjointed. I just don't I I can't see it. But I'm trying, which is why I've had you on the show. But <laughs> I would um, I would just say if if we were just reading straight through the Bible and just saying okay, and again using a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, what the words on the page say is what they mean. I'm reading through and I'm not seeing a lot of covenantal language for the church. We get to the church and he changes the language that they he used when he was talking about Israel. 
And then when we see stuff in the future, the revelation and everything, all of a sudden we're getting back to the same stuff we see in the Old Testament. Like, okay, the church is distinct. The church didn't exist until Acts 2. Um, the church is not destined for wrath. First Thessalonians tells us that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. We're not destined to wrath. We know there's wrath coming. The Old Testament tells us upon whom the wrath is going to come. So the church shouldn't be here. So we come to a rapture. Yeah. Uh, all of that just to me comes from just a natural plain reading of the text in context, um, you know, to the people and, and for the reasons that these guys were writing. I, I, I read that passage is just just to be clear that that wrath is eternal judgment and has nothing to do with some tribulation that we've as believers, we're not destined to wrath. We've been predestined to life. But that's a that's a Calvinistic reading that I, you're probably going to reject. But I wanted to make that clear mm -hmm. for my listeners how I deal with that. But mm -hmm. I want to give you the last word on that, on um, the Israel church distinction. I don't want to sit and debate it with you anymore. I just I had to provide that pushback simply because I do have a lot of covenant listeners that be like, why didn't you at least bring up Galatians 3 or whatever? So, mm -hmm. um yeah, we can agree to disagree, but I, I'd like to learn more and keep digging on and, and try to understand this more. So we talked privately about something called progressive dispensationalism, and it's funny because they sound a lot more like me <laughs> than they do like you. Uh, they're happy with saying things like the already and the not yet. So what, Daniel, what happened to dispensationalism where it kind of sounds like they're coming more around to covenantal thinking? Yeah, Um and and I told you that um, in a podcast I heard where uh, uh, Ligon Duncan was talking about uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology, sort of offhanded, he talked mm -hmm. about this new progressive dispensationalism, which really is new-ish. Um, it was it started basically it was pop started to be popularized in the eighties, nineteen eighties, and he said. His take on progressive dispensationalism is basically the dispensationalists have had their fun playing out in the weeds, and now they're coming <laughs> home to covenant theology. And I would agree with him on that take. I think progressive dispensationalism, uh, so-called, is not mm -hmm. really dispensationalism at all. It really is more covenant than it is dispensational. It's it's somewhat of a of a. It's uh, like a, covenant theology with a rapture. And yeah, right. Covenant theology light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is closer to you than it is to me. And and the hallmark of progressive dispensational, for anybody who doesn't know, the hallmark is the already not yet kingdom. They see a spiritual kingdom now, just like you do, and a, and a physical literal kingdom later. Um, Which whether I also that's, see, by the way, but I, I dispute the... The timing of it, go on. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Many of them would, many of them would still see that in a in a millennial thousand year reign mm -hmm. for the eternal state, whereas you would just see it in the eternal state. I think. Yeah, just he's coming to reign, and it's going to be great. That's yeah. kind of where I leave it. Yeah. Basically, what it comes down to is this, and th and this does come back to our new covenant discussion, just very very briefly. Oh, great. That's fine. And and, and that is that. Um, the 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 tenet of progressive dispensationalism says the Davidic covenant has a spiritual current aspect where Jesus is reigning now as king on David's throne, but it's in heaven. And then there will be the literal physical reigning on David's throne here on earth. Mm -hmm. So they go to they go to Hebrews, which quotes Psalm 110, you know, yep. sit at my right hand until I you know make your enemies your footstool. footstool. 
Post mills so they, love that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's and that's sort of really what it is 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 a spiritual post mill in, in a mm-hmm. sense, spiritualizing. There's a spiritual aspect to the kingdom that is the church. Um, and 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 they came out and said basically, hey, dispensation, classic dispensationalists. Um, you've been doing this with the new covenant this whole time, having the spiritual new covenant now, and then the physical literal new covenant later on in the, in the physical literal kingdom. We're just being honest enough to say it's not just the new covenant. It's also the Davidic covenant. Right. And so honestly, that was one of the things that, that admission, that blatant, bold admission is what got uh, many of us rethinking our position on the new covenant not to be a knee jerk. Oh, well, we can't believe that anymore. But no, but my people true, are basically going to say, well, if you're willing to say that. Yes. You're, then you're why exactly do you reject right. the rest of what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. You're exactly right. Which is why progressive dispensationalists really are closer to covenant than they are uh, what I would call true or classic dispensationalism. But that led several of us to say, you know what? Um, let's rethink this. And can can we anymore can we honestly we, we've sort of let the whole you know spiritual already not yet new covenant thing slide because it's just <laughs> part of classic dispensationalism is that true and some of us have um um have, have really taken a hard look at that and come to the conclusion if we were being honest with our hermeneutic a literal hermeneutic jeremiah 31 says with whom and when and so we need to you know be honest and not be in the new covenant. Um, and, and it was actually progressive dispensationalism that helped us move to that position. So people like Christopher Cohn, uh, both uh, doctors, uh, or Dr. Cohn, uh, doctors George and David Gunn, um, and, and several others are, are really ta- taking a, a lot stronger position on no new covenant for the church. And progressive dispensationalism helped push us in that direction. So... Um, that, that, that brings me to the question, I guess you would, can you consistently say I have the law of God written on my heart? Yes. How? Because as you're working through the Greek text of Romans, we, we have a difficult time right. saying there's, this in, there's in a the law, there's, there's a law on some, everybody has a law on their heart in some way, right? Yep. Yep. The like, thing is, the thing is, is that there is a difference between the law, mm-hmm. which is usually uh, uh, the Mosaic law mm-hmm. and a law, God's law. You know, there was law before, before the Mosaic Moses. law. Sure. You know, uh, th- th- we have capital punishment and murder mentioned in Genesis nine. I mean, even, even Eden had a law. Don't eat. Right. Right. You know, we couldn't even keep one law. <laughs> yeah. I mean, covenant guys have been arguing that for forever, that, that the eternal law of God you know, summed up in the Ten Commandments or whatever, it, it predated the Ten Commandments. Sure. And, and you know, we can argue which which things predated and which, but we don't have a list. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we, we don't have a list pre, pre-Mosaic law. But to say we have the law of God written in our hearts, yeah, absolutely. Romans 2 says that all people, uh, and especially he's even referring to Gentiles specifically in, in Romans 2, have God's law, God's character, his standard— of right and wrong on our conscience, which is why we can go to Romans 3 and find we fall short of the glory of God. Well, how, how, how have we fallen short of it if we didn't even know where it was? 
Well, because there there is a basic moral sense of right and wrong in our consciences. And so Roman, we get to Romans five and he says, well, there's no, there's no uh, sin when there's no law. There's no accounting for sin when there's no law. Well, sure. You can't punish somebody for breaking a law that doesn't exist. Right. Which is why God planted his moral, his basic moral character, his basic moral standard in our consciences. You go to any nation in the world and some things are just right and wrong. They just know it intuitively. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, you can't go back to Ezekiel or or Jeremiah and say, I've been given a new heart and a new spirit, and the heart of stone has been removed. You can't say that for you if you're not in the New Covenant. I can say that I've been given the Holy Spirit because that's all over the New Testament. I can say that— But I've you don't see a parallel. I, I just don't— But you, I see a similarity. I absolutely see a similarity. But I also know that similarity is not equality. You know, David had David had the Holy Spirit on him at different mm-hmm. times, not in, not 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 permanently, but it was enough. Where in Psalm fifty one, he said, "Please don't take your spirit from me," as he's confessing his sin with Bathsheba. Um, uh, Exodus thirty two, I think it is. Um, God is is telling Moses, "Listen, I've given you a man by the name of Bezalel, and I've filled him with the Holy Spirit." Um, mm-hmm. So that so why so that he could be saved? No, so that he could be good at building the tabernacle. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit was to empower him for a task. Uh, sure, is that new I, covenant? I don't know. That that's new covenant. But we that's that's categories. But when it's you still see the, the Holy the, Spirit in a person, sure. But but what I'm talking is that salvific new heart Holy Spirit thing that just seems to be so parallel to the new covenant. And what we see happen at Pentecost and the church and how salvation is described all through the New Testament. But I guess you're just going to say it's similar, but it's not It's not Israel's new covenant. It's That's something that awaits fulfillment. Sure, because there are more. there is more to the new covenant than just an indwelling Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin. So that's why you would have to say, well, yeah, but it's just the spiritual part of the new covenant that we're seeing now, or it's just parts of the new covenant that we're seeing now. And I'm saying the new covenant is a package. You get the whole thing or you don't get any of it. So just because two things are similar, you know, I get forgiveness of sins now and forgiveness of sins is in the new covenant, doesn't mean I'm a participant in the new covenant or I'm party to the new covenant. That's all I'm saying is that, yes, there are definitely similarities. Okay. Um, but there were there was forgiveness of sins under the Mosaic Covenant, but I'm not in the Mosaic Covenant. No, but I would argue those forgiveness of sins were only possible via the full plan and counsel of God that we know about the cross. It was, but what they understood is what they understood. Um, mm-hmm. So, all right, well, let's talk about the millennium then, because uh, this is this has been a great episode, a very enlightening. What do you think? How does it work for because Jews are being saved right now? The Jews are a part of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul was a part of the church, and in Romans eleven, he makes the case that God hasn't cast off Israel specifically because I'm an Israelite. There's a remnant right now elected according to grace. The church is this new thing, but there's also this old thing coming for Israel and a promise. So, what is the future of a messianic Jewish person? And someone who's saved right now in Christ, what, the, what does their millennial status look like? Do they just kind of walk into some better privileges? And, you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to sound asinine. I just I don't yeah. get it. 
that it, it's those are that's going to be one of those areas where I'm going to say we don't have all the details. Um, I have good friends who say there's absolutely no the a messianic Jew, uh, a Jew who believes in Jesus as Messiah is added to the church body of Christ has is no different than any other believer in Christ, any other Gentile in Christ at this time. You know, we go to, we can go to passages like Galatians uh, 3, go to Colossians 3, no difference, Jew, Gentile, whatever, none, right? Again, I think that passage is talking about the inheritance of salvation. A Jew and a Gentile don't inherit salvation differently, uh, just like a man and a woman don't inherit salvation differently. And yet there are still clear differences between men and women, contrary to what people like to think, you know? (laughs) So I I don't see that as, you know, all distinction completely forever is removed. Um, I actually think, and, and again, you know, this is, this is my opinion on this. Um, I think it's sort of like the best of both worlds. If I were a Jew who comes to believe in the true Messiah not only do I get all the physical blessings that God has promised to, you know, Israel, but I also get all the spiritual blessings of being in the church too. Mm-hmm. I think it's a best of both worlds thing. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. Uh, my friends who say no, it's not the best of both worlds thing. The church, you know, overrules. You know, being in the church is better than just being a believing Israelite or something. Uh, you know. I'm, you know, we're not going to break our friendship or fellowship over it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. I, I just, I just think it's as I read through the text, uh, through the scriptures, I'm just like, man, for a Jew, a Jewish person to believe in Messiah and be and be joined to the church, that's got to be better than somebody who believed in Messiah who's not joined to the church, right? Well, if if I was in your camp, I would say that too because it feels like a very a, a hole I can drive a truck through if you say, <laughs> fr- frankly, if you say, well, a Jew right now is no different than you, and they're they're going to have the same benefits as you in the kingdom, um, but it's only that last generation that gets converted and all. Like that's just that feels like what's the point? Yeah. If the promises aren't for the people as a whole, and just a last generation thing, that seems disingenuous. Well, you know, um, we go to Hebrews 11 and the people listed in Hebrews 11, you know, Abraham's and Noah's and, you know, all these people, they, uh, the writer specifically says they didn't receive the promises that were made to them because mm-hmm. they're still looking for them. They will receive those promises in the future. They just haven't right. received them yet. So I'm like, uh, yeah. But that, there's Gentiles in that list too. In the, um, in the Hall list of Hebrews faith? 11? Yeah. Well, there are, well, there's, I mean, Abraham was a Gentile in the uh-huh. sense that there were no Jews yet. And Rahab wasn't, she was, she Rahab was, uh, was not, right. But, but she, she joined, joined the community. She joined the community, right. She became, yeah, so. she became a, 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 a Jewish wife, basically. I mean, yeah. David's what, great grandmother or something. So, right. So she gets, she gets to be Jewish by incorporation. Um, do you think it's an ethnic thing or just a part of the covenant thing? Because that, because they're well, proselytes. Yeah, the, because pros, in, in order to be a true proselyte, um, you had to uh, be, basically become as much. A proselyte was as close to a Jew as you could get without being physically, ethnically the blood of mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the only reason that, that you were able to come into that covenant was as a true proselyte. You look at some of the Gentiles like Cornelius in Acts 10. Um, he was a God-fearer. 
but he was not a proselyte. He, he believed and worshipped the God of Israel without actually joining Israel. Right. So in the millennial kingdom, if there is a distinction here, what is the church's role versus Israel? Because I think you said something to me in our private conversation where like the whole kingship language is very Israeli and really doesn't have much to do with the church. Oh, got it, got it. I see. Um, I'm, I'm talking about that um, uh, specifically right now. I don't think Jesus is the king of the church. You know, he's he's definitely the head of the church, the head of the body, but he's definitely not king of the church. When we get into the millennium, uh, the messianic kingdom, mm -hmm. um, Jesus is king of the world. Jews mm -hmm. and Gentiles alike, church, non-church, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, millennium saints, all, you know, he's king of everybody, believers, and I think there will be unbelievers in the millennium. He's king of them. He's king of everybody. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a hierarchy, just like there is in every kingdom. Um, I believe that David, King David from the Old Testament, literally will be resurrected in the kingdom and resume a level of kingship, like a vice regency or something underneath the son of David, the the, wow. the Davidic king. I see that in Ezekiel. Um, some people read that and say, well, the reference to David is really the reference to Messiah. Well, I think it's literally David. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in the kingdom. They'll be subjects of the Messiah that they had anticipated and waited for, you know, Moses and all those guys, Elijah. In fact, Moses and Elijah, of course, were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking about what was to come, I think. The church is interesting because from, from my position, if the, 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 the kingdom was never promised to the church, so we're not expecting to go into the, into the kingdom as subjects with our king and, and whatever. What, in fact, we have, according to Romans 8, is that we are joint heirs with the king. We will actually mm -hmm. inherit the kingdom. We will be there with him. We will be ruling. We will be reigning in his kingdom with him. Now, he, Paul does say in, in Romans 8, 17, if we suffer with him, I do believe that there are levels of reward, levels of responsibility, mm -hmm. um, and those who those who live out faithfully will have more reward and responsibility than those who don't live faithfully. So um, I think that'll all be reflected in the kingdom. A um, couple other things that I think are are important: the passages, First uh, Corinthians six, Paul says, "Don't you know that saints will judge the world? Mm -hmm. Don't you know that we're going to judge angels?" Well, that's obviously still future. Don't know exactly all of the details because it's somewhat in passing that he says that, but he says this is coming and he uses mm -hmm. that in, you know, you should be judging each other, judging yourselves, you know, because aren't we going to do this? So there's something, I think that's probably kingdom. Um, Jesus, when, um, when Jesus talked, it's really interesting. Jesus used the term in Matthew tw in 19, he said in the regeneration, in the regeneration, so when when the world is regenerated, not when it's recreated, that would be the new heavens and the new earth, but when it's regenerated, and I see that as, as the, the thousand year, first thousand years of the kingdom, the millennium, he told the, uh, the apostles they would sit on thrones and they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, well, they obviously were part of the church, so I see some, some reigning or ruling there with him. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, which I see as future. Uh, he says 1,000 years, six times in six verses. He said, those who are a part of the first resurrection 
which I think are started with Christ and then would be all believers of all time will have some kind of ruling, you know, in, in the hierarchy. So the church would definitely be a part of that. So I see us there, not as subjects, you know, just obeying the king, but as ruling and reigning alongside him as joint heirs of his kingdom, as the body of Christ, and he is the head. Why does it sound like I have a better deal than the Jewish person in the millennium? <laughs> um, you, you would have the same deal um, in a sense with the Messianic Jews that we were just talking about, right? right. Right. Um, but they're, 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 that's why I'm saying there's not a lot of detail there. I happen to think it's the best of both worlds. But but what were they offered? What was Abraham offered? He was offered a nation and a kingdom, mm-hmm. but he wasn't going to be the king. Okay, so he's getting what he was offered. He was He's getting sure. what he was promised. Sure, it just feels like, I feel like our position is attacked for anti-Semitism and things like that. But I by what you're saying is I'm ruling with the king and you guys are subjects. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they were promised. And they were <laughs> among other things, among other things, you know. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that we are <laughs> not all of us, but but Christians tend to uh we love to take the promises of Israel. You know, we we love to take the promises that God made to Israel for ourselves, but we'll keep the bless or the the curses on Israel. Well, we're not going to take the curses because those were for Israel. But um yeah, you know, God promised this and this and this, and we're part of that, and so we get to take all of those blessings. I find that a little bit disingenuous because, again, I think it's a character thing. God made the promises, both good and bad, to these people, and he will fulfill them, both good and bad. Uh, And if he decides to add a measure of grace to some of them, I mean, he can do that, but he can't back out of something he's already promised. Yeah, and... I, and then my Pato Baptist would just say, but there's new covenant curses too. You can break the covenant and be cursed. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean that, and I'm still chewing on those issues myself too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm definitely in more of the covenantal world when it comes to that. Well, I think this has been a really enlightening conversation. I sure have a lot to think about, and I appreciate your time and explanation and just going through the passages with me. I, I If you feel like I shotgunned you with passages, I apologize, but there were just so many that came to mind this morning that I, ha- I had to ask you about, um, not to argue, just to be like, how do you read that? Like, Because I know how I'm reading it because I have my presuppositions. What do you do with it? So I think we got a good a good place Um Daniel, do you have any closing thoughts on any books uh, someone should read? I think I think obviously you uh, recommend Charles Ryrie and things like that. But <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm also gonna put the link to your website. You said theologiesforeveryone.com. Yes, thank you. I, um, I have a couple. I have a I have a couple of books that are available. Um, uh, not on this topic necessarily. I have a few articles that I've written on this topic. Um, uh, my membership my my website is a membership site. I'm producing video courses and and I make those available. It's a free free account if anybody is interested. Okay. It, for but for those who really want a, a a basic sort of an introduction to dispensationalism and just where you know why in the world do I come to some of these conclusions and mm-hmm. and maybe just be able to explore it for themselves. Definitely Charles Ryrie's book Dispensationalism. That's that's mm-hmm. the classic. There's a new book that came out a couple of years ago entitled What is Dispensationalism? 
Paul Miles is the general editor. I was one of, I think, 27 maybe contributors to that nice. book, the chapters and articles that are uh, include and and some what uh, what Paul calls graceful debates. There are mm-hmm. there are a couple of places in there where there are you know a, a double page spread. You know, let here's one take on this issue. Here's another take on this issue, mm-hmm. and I, I think that you would appreciate that. So sure. uh, both dispensationalism and what is dispensationalism, I think, are fantastic um, resources to get started uh, if somebody wants to get their feet wet and just start thinking through. You yeah, know, a, a different a different angle on things. Yeah, if, if anyone has listened to my show for a few weeks, I'm the first one to admit covenant theology doesn't solve it all. Um, <laughs> if that was true, I wouldn't be talking to 1689 Federalists and New Covenant theologians and Pado Baptists. I wouldn't. Um, but I've had all those guys on there to talk to to discuss our intramural debates mm-hmm. on you know because I've I've got problems with covenant theology, frankly. Um, but I'm way I find myself way more in agreement with them than obviously the dispensational camp. But uh, Daniel, I really feel like I'm in the presence of just uh, theological royalty when I talk to you. I you're just <laughs> you are so fun to talk to and pick your brain. And I hope you have taken my pushback as graceful and trying to learn and not just trying to argue because I I don't want to argue to argue like I'm just trying to understand um, how you how you get around what I for, what I see as an issue. Um, but you have been gracious to me and we just talk as friends and I want everyone to know that Daniel and I are wonderful brothers in Christ. And we, at the end of the day, affirm that Jesus is coming back and he's going to punish the evildoers and he's going to resurrect the bodies of the saints and change those who are here. Whatever that looks like might surprise both of us, but that's coming, right? (laughs) Amen. That's, that's absolutely true. And I really appreciate you, uh, you having me on again. Uh, it really has been great, and uh, you're you're gracious, and uh, you're, the discourse is is so civil, and we just don't get that a lot no. in these types of conversations. I love the term that you used, intramural. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these discussions really are just for in-house for believers who disagree on these things. You know, we're going to preach the gospel that Jesus saves, Jesus alone saves, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Absolutely. That's the yeah, message I, we have for the world. That's the message we we would stand happily to proclaim. And you and I don't think there's any good reason to sit and reason with an atheist about how the new covenant works. No, no, <laughs> nope. They nope, need to creates... understand. They need to yeah. understand who they are and who God is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, until next time, everyone, it depends on how you look at it. 